This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In your new book, Worst Instincts, Cowardice, Conformity, and the ACLU, our guest today, Wendy Kaminer, tells an inside story of dramatic ethical decline at the American Civil Liberties Union, using it as a case study of conformity and other vices of association. Kaminer is the author of many books, including I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional, The Recovery Movement, and Other Self-Help Fashions, and Sleeping with Extraterrestrials, the Rise of Irrationalism and Perils of Piety. Wendy Kaminer, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Nice having you with us. How are you today? I'm good. It's a beautiful day. Um, yeah. We have a, uh, a new Supreme Court justice, I hope. Yeah. Hopefully that... it's a good day. Uh, do, you, do you feel good about that selection? If, uh, what's your assessment of that? Um, you know, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not familiar enough with her um, ruling, so I'm... I'm yeah. I'm I'm not going to offer an opinion on that until I know more. <laughs> oh, very good. Now, now you have a, a, a long history with the ACLU. Could you tell us what what your introduction to the organization was and, and what your history is? I joined the board of the Massachusetts affiliate, the ACLU of Massachusetts, in the early 1990s. Um, I've been a lifelong civil libertarian. Um, I don't know how long I've been a member, but I've always, you know, for a long time I felt like the ACLU was my political home. Uh, I'm still on the Massachusetts ACLU board, though I will be uh, leaving that board very soon. And I served as the Massachusetts representative to the national ACLU board from around 1999 to 2006. Now, the first inkling you had that anything was wrong was uh, right after uh, uh, 9-11. Can you tell us what, what prompted the, the look into the ACLU and the well, corruption? Well, it was, it, it was uh, really in 2003. We had a new executive director, Anthony Romero, who took over shortly after 9-11. Uh-huh. Um, it was in uh, the spring of 2003 that uh, some of us on the board became aware that Romero had been less than honest with us. Um, about um, a consent agreement that he had signed with the New York Attorney General's office regarding some privacy violations on the ACLU website. The the underlying issue was really fairly trivial, as these things go. It was an inadvertent lapse. It had been corrected. But he had entered into an agreement, with the, a consent agreement, with the Attorney General's office without telling it, without consulting the board at all, without letting us know that it was going on. And then after he signed the agreement, which required him to uh, distribute it to the board, he declined to do so, and then he um, was, let's say, less than candid about his reasons for declining to do so. I mean, the, the details aren't all that interesting, but it became clear to a lot of us that he was not being honest with us. And um, even though it was a, a, a not, you know, a, a not a terribly important issue, um, lying is important. And uh, I don't know how an organization can function if it can't trust its executive director to be truthful with its board. So we started, um, a a few of us were very concerned about this, raised questions about it. And from the very beginning, 
the executive committee, the governing committee of the board, the ACLU board is very large. It's an 80-person board, and we elect a 10-person executive committee. The executive committee just circled the wagons around Romero and started shooting at any of his critics. And over the, over a period of several years, um, there were more and more and more serious incidents of misconduct and violations of policy. And uh, those of us who tried to expose, who raised these issues and expose them, became subject to a lot of um, marginalization, demonization. People were pushed off the board. People were voted off the board. Uh, some people just left the board because they were so disgusted. And there was a kind of de facto perch of internal critics. Now, this is a this is a fairly typical organizational story. This is how groups often operate. But it's, uh, you know, it seemed to me to be a story worth telling precisely because it was happening at the ACLU, an organization that is devoted to not behaving yes. in this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, after 9-11, the ACLU was able to increase its membership dramatically. It was raising a lot of funds. Does, does that... Uh, you think in and of itself have a lot to do with the corruption that the executive board was was circling the wagons around Romero because of that? Well, I, I think that the the um, uh, the fact that we were in uh, an unprecedented civil liberties emergency um, made it that much more difficult for the board to tolerate criticism of its executive director. I mean, there was naturally a siege mentality that took over. And when groups feel besieged, um, they're much more likely to to circle around their leaders in this way and become much more intolerant of internal dissent. I think that's probably also a typical story. The fact that there was an unprecedented amount of money pouring in, which was a combination of the Bush administration, um, post-9-11, and also the enormous concentration of wealth that we saw, uh, in the early years of this century, um, protected Romero because people, uh, you know, our, our membership was growing. We were incredibly wealthy, and uh, all of that was was a very effective shield for criticism. Now, this would gen- this would generally be a story of a, a sort of a organization infighting, except that. It- what impact did it have on the decision-making that was going on in terms of cases that were being taken up and sort of if there were, were there policy shifts or were there appreciable differences in the way that they were well, approaching? Well, the, the 9-11 work itself was compromised um, in uh, one of his most notorious um, missteps, people like to call what, you know, there's a real debate about whether this was misconduct or whether this was a series of mistakes. But uh, one of one of Romero's most notorious missteps was to um, sign a blacklisting agreement with the Bush administration in order to participate in something called the Combined Federal Campaign, which is a charitable giving program for federal employees. Uh, he signed, as, as many organizations signed, an agreement with the administration saying that they would not hire anybody who was named on various blacklists. Now, these were the same terrorist watch lists that the ACLU was opposing vigorously, raising money to oppose, and Romero very quietly signed this blacklisting agreement with the government. Concealed it from the board for a while. Um, then when it was exposed um, at a at a national board meeting, the board actually 
voted down a motion to withdraw from it. Um, At that point, um, the story ended up, the story of the signing of the blacklist ended up on the front page of the New York Times. I and a couple of other people talked to the New York Times reporter about it. Uh, members of the executive committee talked to him about it. Um, and, of course, as soon as it was exposed in the New York Times, then they immediately withdrew. That's a stunning story. It was stunning. Yeah. It, it was stunning. And it followed, uh, or it was shortly followed by the revelation that uh, in, in the early uh, year, uh, year or two of his tenure as ACLU executive director, Romero had advised the president of the Ford Foundation to, as he put it, parrot the Patriot Act in its grant agreements. And we had, it was another major controversy that uh, Romero had signed a grant agreement with the Ford Foundation that uh, imposed real restrictions on speech and association. And it was the kind of thing that generally the ACLU would firmly oppose. And we found out not only had he signed this, but he had helped write it. So that at the same time that he was raising gazillions of dollars boasting of the ACLU's opposition to the Patriot Act, he was advising Ford to parrot the Patriot Act and its grant restrictions and effectively helping to spread it throughout the private sector. I mean, these are, these are complicated stories, uh, and they're, they're laid out in the book. Yeah. But the bottom line is that there's a real verifiable record of deceit and gross violations of civil liberties principles and that the board the board didn't really want to hear it and instead of addressing the problems um, of misconduct by its leadership the board just took aim at the leadership's critics and and purged the board of them how could this even be considered a misstep how did the board characterize you know actually signing something that runs counter to what they stand for as a misstep, it seems it seems pretty hypocritical. Period. Oh, uh, uh, it, it it's enormously hypocritical. Um, people were staking out positions that um, didn't really make a lot of sense, but they didn't have to make a lot of sense because the entire group was behind them, and uh, and they essentially lied about what had happened in in many cases. Um, Romero claimed when he when he was first revealed that he had signed this blacklist agreement, he said rather stupidly. He said this on tape at a, at an open meeting that uh, he had he had signed this black he had signed this agreement, but he had no intention of complying with it. Oh my God! And he basically said that he interpreted it to uh, mean that you only had to um, refrain from hiring people named on the list if you actually knew who was on them. And he had printed them out, but he had not read them. Now, as several lawyers said, when he, when, he, when he made this admission, he made himself vulnerable to prosecution under a federal fraud statute. Well, well and, I mean, a bla- this is what's so stunning about the story is here's an organization that really was in the forefront in the 50s, in, uh, the blacklisting of people. And- no, actually, that's not true. It was not, the ACLU was not in the forefront in the 1950s. Oh. The 1950s was a fairly shameful period for the ACLU oh, well, because it... It um, it held back from vigorously challenging the blacklist, and in fact, um, as the ACLU board acknowledged in the mid 1970s, there were ACLU officials who were uh, informing on ACLU activists to the FBI. Wow! 
Okay. It was it was a pretty shameful period. Oh my goodness! Well, um, there, there's one of many organizations that that well, behaved that, very very. But you wouldn't expect. I'm I didn't know that. This is the yeah, first time no, I've heard this. Y- you would not expect it, and and it's a it's an important history to keep in mind because it it tells us that uh, organizations like the ACLU sometimes betray their own ideals quite grievously. And, you know, one of the problems that I and and others had in trying to get the leadership and also the membership to address these problems was the sense that this can't be true because this is the ACLU. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, often people in not-for-profit groups and advocacy groups, they're so convinced that they're on the side of the angels that they really can't hear challenges to their own integrity. You know, I think 20 years from now, people will look back at this period and they'll, they'll have some clearer sense of um, how, how badly the ACLU had lapsed. But it's very hard for people who are involved in it and who take a lot of pride out of being involved with the organization. It's really hard for them to acknowledge it or even see it. Yes. We're speaking with Wendy Kaminer. The book is Worst Instincts, Cowardice, Conformity, and the ACLU. And what turned the ACLU then around after the uh, the 1950s, after it it uh, was pretty much exposing, in at least some people there, well, people with that, the blacklist? Well, that is uh, before my time. But okay. my, my understanding from people who were around then is that one of the things that turned the ACLU around was uh, were the affiliates. ACLU had state affiliates, and in those days the affiliates enjoyed a fair amount of autonomy. And uh, affiliates like this is the story. I, 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 this is the story that I've been told about what happened. Affiliates like California, in New York, in Massachusetts, staked out positions that were braver than the kinds of positions that the national was was staking out, and and pulled the national organization back. Again, that's that's just something I've been told. I'm not really an expert on this. Yeah. But you know, the when the, when the period of history passes, where people are feeling under siege, sometimes their behavior changes too. You know, the ACLU is is part of the culture in which it's operating. Yeah, th- and th- and I think that the that um, the misconduct at the ACLU is is in many ways not so different from the misconduct that we've seen um, in the financial sector, the misconduct that we've seen in government. It's been very much a part of the culture for the last eight or nine years. So, is is this been a uh, part of the rash- reason for this uh, change in the in the direction and philosophy of the ACLU um, is this a kind of a calcification of the leadership? Is it something that people have become comfortable and as you said they they feel like they're on the side of angels? So if we're doing it, we're we're somehow if we're doing it. It must be right. It must be right because we're yeah. doing it. Is, is it is something about the, the the organization being around? A while, and you, like I said, this calcification of the leadership is that is that a part of well, it? Well, um, you know, I, I think that the current leadership now is quite entrenched. They've succeeded in purging their critics. Um, state affiliates are much less autonomous than they used to be, partly because there's been an increase in the um, in discretionary grant money that goes from national to affiliates. So it's 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 all pretty well entrenched, and I, I, you know my concern and the concern of um, of several other people is that uh, you know it the only thing that's going to change this is a major scandal, and that there is so much secrecy still, and so little oversight 
that there's always, you know, there's always the possibility of some big scandal. You know, people say w- one of the defenses to um, all of the concerns that I've raised in my book and that, that other people have raised is, well, first of all, some of these things happened in the past and, and we need to move on. And, and look at the results. You know, the organization is functioning so well. They're pressing for the release of the torture photos now. They're doing all this important work and, and all of this other stuff, all of this internal misconduct, internal governance issues are really minor compared to the important work of the ACLU. I mean, that, that is the primary fallback defensive people. And, and one, there are a lot of answers to it, that um, in part because the ACLU is an important organization that can still do important work, it's really important that it be managed honestly. Yeah. You know, the fact that it does important work is not an excuse for managing it dishonestly. It's also a bit like saying it doesn't matter that Nixon kept an enemies list because he opened relations with China. <laughs> You know, it's 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 somewhat irrelevant. If we were talking about embezzlement, nobody would say, "Oh, yeah," but they're but they're they're forcing the release of the torture photos, and we don't really know what we're talking about because there's so much secrecy. And we saw with the Madoff debacle how dangerous secrecy is. It it is amazing. And looking back, as we get a little more distance from nine eleven, we just sort of collectively lost our our minds, our way. I don't know exactly what what uh, there just it was. It was. It still shocks me to see how sort of paper thin um, the idea that that we have a constitution, sort of a a, a hard line uh, that you can't cross over with the warrantless wire, wiretapping and the lists and the and the uh, what are they the, when they can come in and search your home without you knowing about it. I mean, all these things that are going on that we all I think I always assumed were just beyond the pale of the government. There's just no way that 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 line would be crossed. But well. You know, I've often said that civil liberties are like um, tax loopholes. People only appreciate them when they use them (laughs) or when they feel that their own liberties and their own own tax loopholes are threatened. And fear is very powerful, as we've seen. Well, as a card-carrying member of the ACLU, what what do I do when I know this information? Is it best to try to... uh, change them from within to voice my grievances? or Yes, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. I wouldn't encourage anybody not to be a member of the ACLU, and I wouldn't encourage anybody not to give money to the ACLU. I would, en- I would encourage members and supporters to um, make their concerns known, to um, uh, talk to people who represent them at the state affiliates, to write letters, to do all the things that, that people do. Um, I think the ACLU is too important an organization to abandon or to allow to decline in this way. We're speaking with Wendy Kaminer. The book is Worst Instincts, Cowardice, Conformity, and the ACLU. And do you think that it it seemed like the the ACLU's mission might have changed back in the 1950s? Is this a a, a radical uh, mission change? you think anything's really changed w- with the, the basic mission of the ACLU since 2003? I think there um, is a kind of gradual ideological shift. Um, I think it is, um, it's becoming, um, free speech is less of a priority at the ACLU, especially politically incorrect speech is less of a priority for the ACLU. It is, um, you might say that it's moving to the left, um, it, it, or you might say that it is um, 
focusing more on civil rights and less on civil liberties, except um, for the some of the post nine eleven work. But I, I think really what's going on is that, um, to a great extent, policy decisions are being driven by fundraising. Yeah, I was going to say that. That that's really what's going yeah, well, on. When you get that taste of success, like they yeah. had, and it's difficult to walk away from. So that, that you know, it it will do. Um, it will do important civil liberties work around post nine eleven abuses, partly because that's very popular with donors. And and when I say this, I'm not for I, I'm not for a minute denigrating the um, attorneys who are involved in this work, who I assume are dedicated to it. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they believe in what they're doing. I'm talking about the kind of policy decisions that are made, the the way the organization's priorities are forged. So that work still brings in a lot of money. It's also consistent with the organization's mission. Defending the rights of people to engage in anti-gay speech or other kinds of politically incorrect speech doesn't generally bring in very much money. So while you'll still see some affiliates taking on these kinds of cases, uh, you won't see the national office doing it so much anymore. It's my understanding that hundreds of cases are presented to the ACLU for them to take up. And this is where I, it may be where, where you're talking about policy decisions. Not all of them are 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 uh, become the uh, the case that the ACLU will argue in court. So oftentimes you'll find that they go for they've been go they will go for cases that reflect some kind of ph- philosophy or philosophical judgment on their part. Well, it, it, it's uh, it, first of all, it probably varies. Uh, a lot of a lot of the work is done locally by affiliates. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Massachusetts affiliate, for example, there is um, a legal screening committee mm-hmm. um, that uh, works with staff to go over the um, uh, more difficult, controversial cases that come in. You know, for the most part, staff makes these decisions guided by policies that have been set by the board. There are a lot of cases that come in, um, cases involving public schools, uh, you know, cases involving the kind of everyday violations of civil rights and civil liberties that that don't really need to be litigated. There are a lot, there are a number of problems that can be solved by a staff attorney writing a letter mm-hmm. um, and pointing out to an administrator, you know, or some bureaucrat that what he's doing is a violation of the law. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it really varies. And mm-hmm. uh, there is, of course, there's still a lot of important work that's done by the ACLU, both at the um, affiliate and the national level. But there are um, trends at the national, especially at the national level, that are, that are not encouraging. Well, let me ask you, given you, since you've written a book, since it's come out, you, uh, what's been re- the reaction among your colleagues? Uh, have you heard anything from members of the board? Are you, are there any uh, you know, it's, it's really hard for me to know. Um, there are, uh, you know, I, in, in many circles of the ACLU, I am something of a pariah and have been for a long time. I hear privately from people um, uh, who have, you know, who share my concerns or who have looked at the book. And, um, but, you know, for the most, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm being a little inarticulate because I, I really don't know. I know that a lot of people have looked at it. Not everybody tells me what, <laughs> what they think about it. Mm-hmm. And especially the people who are sympathetic are less likely to speak up than the people who are going to denounce me. What do you think? So it's, it's really hard. It's very hard for me to know. Do you think the ACLU would be a better organization if Anthony Romero were simply removed? At 
this point, I think that the entire executive committee should resign along <laughs> with him. <laughs> well, 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 how how now how um, what is the the speed at which you can get changes at the executive board? Is this a is, are these people in there for a term, or they can be voted out? There are elections every two years um, for the entire board, or. Or no, there are well. The way the entire board is constituted, each affiliate sends a representative to the national board. Mm-hmm. So there are, let's say, you know, fifty affiliate representatives, and they are elected by their affiliate boards. There are thirty-five people who are elected at large by the to serve on the national board, and the people who vote in elections are members of the national board and members of affiliate boards. So the membership, the actual membership of the ACLU, does not vote in national board elections. Because we have a weighted voting system, it's not a one-person, one-vote system. Um, The votes of national board members are heavily weighted, so to some extent the national board actually elects itself. Mm. Um, There's a lot of control now um, of the affiliate boards coming from national, so it's a fairly closed system. That's that's fascinating. It's easy to influence, if not control, elections. Wow. What's the best hope for the ACLU right now? What would you like to see happen, or and do you see any signs of anything happening? No. No. I'm. I'm really. I'm not very hopeful about the near future. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see a sign of anything happening unless there is some sort of really damaging scandal that none of us want to see. Mm-hmm. Oh. So I, I don't really have much reason for hope. Well, at least for the near future. Well, you continue to do work in the area of uh, civil liberties and and such. So, uh, what are you what you. are you doing uh, aside yeah. from your work with the ACLU and the book, obviously? Um, mostly writing. I'm not working on another book right now. Just um, uh, writing columns. I still write about civil liberties, um, and I will continue to do that. All right. Very good. Well, so, it, terrific. It's a fascinating book. Thank worst, you. Worst instincts. Cowardice, Conformity, and the ACLU. Wendy Kaminer, thanks for being on Weekly Signals. My pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.